of Scripture this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 22, verses 13 to 30, inclusive. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman when I came near her, I did not find her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman, she has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, then they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. God's word for us. My friends, our, our cultural attitude towards sex, just across the board, really is a study in contradictions. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, we're, we're told that, that sex has no particular meaning, okay? It's a, it's a biological urge. Um, it's a physical act, no, no different than eating or sleeping. So as long as no one gets hurt, it's all good. Um, you want to see this? 2014, Rachel Hill, writing for Time Magazine, put it this way. For people born after 1980, the most important sexual ethic is not about how or with whom you have sex, but open-mindedness. As one young man put it, nothing should be seen as alien 
or looked down upon as wrong. On the other hand, we're also told that sex matters more than anything. Right? So if, if you're not getting some, you're missing out. Um, exploring your, your sexual identity, satisfying your physical desires. That's the key to joy in life, we're told. Popular magazines for men and women. I won't mention titles lest you go check them out. (laughs) They overflow with articles touting sex as a rapture of divine proportions. An out-of-this-world wonder. And kind of on the other end of the emotional spectrum, under the same heading, just to prove the point, don't try to tell someone who has been sexually abused that sex is meaningless. They will beg to differ. Their enduring sorrow and anguish suggest the contrary. Here's the truth, friend. Sex is not meaningless. And it's not just Deuteronomy 22 that tells us that. The whole Bible tells us that. And one of the reasons I'm really excited to preach this passage is because when this kind of topic comes up, it gets really quiet in this room, and I have your attention almost like no other Sunday. And that excites me because God has things to say to us here, friends, in a world that could not be more confused when it comes to sexuality. The collective testimony of Scripture reveals there is a mystery in sex. There's there's something afoot with sex that's categorically deeper than biological necessity. And so in that sense, don't hear what I'm not saying, but cultural voices that really worship sex, they're not in entirely off the mark because there is a divine glory in it. There, there is a, there's a mesmerizing wonder in sex because it's not ultimately about you. It's about God. It's about God. I say that because I think even in the church, anything related to sex or sexuality can, can in some corners just feel like the thing of which we don't speak because I don't know what's going on over there, but God's not in that. It's not true, friend. Sex isn't about you. It's about God. It's something good God created to bear witness to the union to the oneness of relationship between Christ and the church. Physical intimacy, that's what sex is, right? Physical intimacy and life-giving ecstasy echo a much greater glory, if you would. Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of, of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Speaking of sex, this mystery is profound. He's not just talking about marriage, okay? Don't, don't write the sex out of Paul's language. He's talking about sex in the context of marriage. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What's, what's my point? That sex isn't about you. <laughs> it's about God. And that means the whole second half of Deuteronomy here is not just a list of, you know, outdated rules and, and random penalties. It's a holy summons, my friend, to uphold the faithfulness of God with your body. That's the call here. Moses doesn't deal with every conceivable case of sexual sin. But he does work through enough cases at at the the intersection of, of biblical justice and sexuality. We're kind of living at that street corner this morning to establish clear, unmistakable, guiding principles that help us know what do we do with our bodies in a broken and fallen world. So I'm going to give you four of them this morning. From this passage, guiding principles from God's word that help us know what do we do with our bodies, particularly our sexuality in a broken and fallen world. Here's the first one. Principle one. Verses 13 through 21, our actions matter because we bear God's name. Wait, I thought we were going to talk about sex. I don't, I don't see sex in that first point, Matthew. Is that a different message? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not because Moses is illustrating something here in the sexual realm that applies to every realm of the Christian life. And in this first case study, look at, look at verse 13, 13, chapter 22. What's going on? A man takes his wife, takes a wife, and goes into her, and then he hates her. So he accuses her of of being sexually unfaithful to him prior to the wedding, which was a capital crime. So what's the guy basically saying? It's not just that one out of the marriage. What's he saying? I want her dead. I want her to be executed. But the accusation is completely false. Why? Because the girl's parents have physical evidence, in this case, that she was in fact a virgin when she got married. They, they have a, a cloak that she saved from her wedding night, stained with hymenal blood, that proves in a public court of law, verse 15, before the elders in the city gate, that the young woman's husband is lying. So what do the elders do? Look at verse 18. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred Shekels of silver. Why? Verse 19. Because he has brought a what? A bad name. He's brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. It's it's the same phrase Moses used back up in verse 14 to describe what's going on here. He brought a bad name upon her. That, Moses says, is the problem here. Wait, but... But I thought it was attempted murder. Was he attempting to murder her? Yeah. But what is, what is the concern Moses focuses on here? It's not the attempted murder that incurs God's judgment so much as it is the public slander. He, this man, denigrated 
the public reputation of a member of the people of God. That's where the Lord goes. Not denying the attempted murder, but he goes here. It's the public slander. Question. Why does her public integrity matter? For the same reason your public integrity matters. What's that? That to be part of God's people is to be called by God's name. Deuteronomy makes this really clear. 28.10 And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you, Israel, people of God, you were called by the name of Yahweh. In Isaiah 43.1 But now thus says Yahweh, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or, or how does Jesus instruct us to, to baptize people, make disciples in Matthew 28, 19? Remember what he says there? Bapt- just baptize them. No. Baptize them what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, so as a child takes the name of his father in our culture, so the Lord puts his name upon us. He identifies you as his own Christian. And that, and that means the way you live impacts and affects a whole lot more than what other people think about you. It affects, it determines what do people believe about God? Whoa, 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 but I'm not God, so the way I live should have nothing to do with God. If they want to know what God's up to, they should read the Bible or listen to you, Matthew. Matthew. Well, do read the Bible. <laughs> but the point is that God has so bound you to himself, Christian, to himself, that the public integrity of your name, your name, determines the public integrity of his name because you bear his name. That's the point. So when the scoundrel falsely accuses his wife, he's not just dragging her name through the gutter. He's dragging Yahweh's name through the gutter. How do we know that? Moses makes it very clear because he says, she's not just a virgin, she's a virgin of Israel. That's why this is a problem. Her sexual purity bears witness to Yahweh's purity in the eyes of the world. And friend, we have the same holy privilege today as members of the local church. The same privilege. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that your parents can give you a gold star for keeping all the rules and making their life a joy. No, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they, the world, might see your good deeds and what? Make much of you? No, glorify God on the day of his visitation. God has bound the public integrity of his name to your public integrity. That's a big deal. That's sobering. All of our actions, not just our sexual actions, matter because we bear God's name, Kingsway. 
And so then and now, if, if one of us sins, if, if one of us publicly dishonors God's name, all of us suffer. Maybe you felt that. Sin, sin always has corporate implications. It's not just, well, you know, I screwed up and I guess I'll have to deal with that. Good thing the world doesn't know. Friend, you might not have put it on your Facebook page, but in the spiritual realm, you have affected and denigrated the collective witness of our body to the beauty of Jesus Christ. I'm not exaggerating when I say that, and I'm not excluding myself when I say that. Sin has corporate implications. It's why Moses requires the elders to get involved. Did you notice that? It's not, it's not just this private matter for the girl's husband and her family. It's a public matter. It immediately becomes a public matter because the integrity of the entire community is on the line. And, and there really is a sober warning for us here, friends. A sober warning that I'll, I'll, I'll break it down in two directions. Okay, a warning in two directions. First, the way you speak of a fellow believer matters more than you know. The way you speak of a fellow believer matters more than you know. Be be careful. Be ever so careful when you are talking about someone with your other friends or you are posting about them on social media or or when you're telling your parents what your brother and sister did last night. Be careful. Do you speak the truth and only the truth? Or or are you shading the story ever so slightly or not so slightly to make yourself look better and them look worse? I don't think social media helps us in this regard. Uh, You have today the power to publicly shame someone who bears the name of Jesus Christ with a click of a button. Can you believe what that person said to me? (laughs) Can you believe what that person did to me? (laughs) Can you believe what that Christian was caught doing? Share. That, That app on your phone, that's a nuclear device. Because the public integrity of the name of Jesus Christ could be denigrated when you press that button. Be careful. Be honest. Even if what that person did to you or what that political party said about yours is factually true, is your over, this is the question, friend, is your overriding aim in whatever you communicate, how can I protect and exalt the name of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm not talking about God. I'm just ranting against his people. I'm just saying it like it is. I'm just being real. Friend, You're not being real 
if you're denigrating the name of the glorious one who called us. Because he's infinitely glorious. What those other people did or said may all be true. But if you speak of that or post about that or write about that or whisper about that over the water cooler in a way that denigrates the honor and glory and fame of God in public, he's watching. He's reading. He's listening to your every word because his name is on the line. That's the first warning. That's just half of it. Here's the second part, okay? Second, what you do with your body, especially in the sexual realm, matters more than you know. So the way we speak about other Christians in the public realm matters more than we know. And what we do with our body, especially in the sexual realm, matters more than you know. Your your actions, Christian, hear me on this. Your actions, whether you want them to or not, whether you think about them this way or not, they invariably reflect on God's honor. So why does Proverbs 22.1 say, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches? Or Romans 12.7, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Why scripture say that stuff? Is it because God's just exhorting us to respect ourselves more? <laughs> you know? Or to live for the approval of man a little bit? Or to idolize our reputation. You you should care more about what people think of you. I mean, a little fear of man is good for these Christians. No, no. What's the point? The Lord's reminding us that, that spiritual integrity is a precious thing. It's a valuable thing. Why? Because you bear God's name. He's bound his public integrity to yours. You, you wear his flag you represent his kingdom. You, you play for his team. So, so if you sin sexually, it's not a, it's not a personal matter. You're, you're denigrating the glory and honor of your God. Which is why, look at verse 21, the Lord insists at the end of this section that if the charge of immorality is determined to be true, what, what do they need to do? You shall purge the evil from your midst. For the sake of God's own justice, he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Do you see that? And that's not an overreaction, friend. That is, that's the divine commitment that upholds the moral fabric of the universe. It's that good. It's that right. We, we guard the purity of the church today in the same way through a practice of discipline. Because our actions matter. Your actions matter. Because we bear God's name. That's the first guiding principle. Here's the second one. Now we're dipping more directly into the sexual realm. Point number two. Principle two. Sexual sin maligns the covenant faithfulness of God. Sexual sin maligns the covenant faithfulness of God. Verse 22. Really brings it into focus here. Look there with me. If a man is found Lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. It's a classic case of adultery, right? So what what is that? It's a violation of the seventh commandment, shall not commit adultery. And it's a violation of the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
both in the Old Testament and the New, hear this, Scripture categorically forbids any and all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. But what if they're both in loveless relationships? And their passions are strong and the sparks are flying and, and the lighting is dimmed on the movie set and the, the soundtrack is just right. Well, we almost start to sympathize, don't we? You know what I'm talking about? We, we think, oh, it's, it's, it's almost beautiful. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good. The depictions of sex that you watch shape your theology of your body far more than you know. Be careful. Listen to what, what God has to say both at the beginning of the story of our lives and the end of the story. Because here's the reality, okay? You'll never understand why adultery is wrong in God's kingdom unless you understand the beginning of the story and the end of the story. So what's our God say at the beginning? Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, what does that teach us? Among many things, it teaches us that sex is God's idea, not ours. <laughs> right? The, the be fruitful and multiply part, I mean, that, that's overtly sexual. <laughs> right? That is God saying, I have given you a mission to produce offspring, and I have given you a sexual means of accomplishing my mission. That's God created this. Turn to Genesis 2, 24, we learn a little bit more. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. How's this go down, this mission? And hold fast to his wife. That's how it goes down. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What does that teach us? That, that the physical act of, of becoming one flesh has been entrusted by God to one man and one woman in the covenant context of marriage. What I said earlier. Sex is more, in other words, than just a biological means of filling the earth. It's a, it's a relational gift that, that unites a husband and a wife at an incredibly deep level. But, but you can almost hear the objection at this point, right? Like, okay, so, so what is it that, that makes sex itself so sacred? And, and particularly, Pastor, why, why is sex reserved for marriage. I mean, I get that it does some good things. I'm still trying to track with what you're talking about in marriage, but does that make it a problem outside of marriage? Well, it's a good question, friend. What makes the marriage union and sex in the marriage union so sacred? Great question. 
I was reading on the BBC a few months ago about, about the rise of open marriages in Europe. It's sad, but the idea was if everyone agrees to the arrangement, why not mix and match with multiple partners? It passes the consent test. That seems to be the only one we culturally care about anymore. So why not go there? Well, here's the reason, friend. The institution of marriage is not about us any more than sex is about us. It's not. It's all about God. How do we know that? How do we know that the institution of the church led by men is not just creating that idea as a functional social control mechanism? Isn't this all just like a power play by the patriarchy? Nope. How do we know this? Everything Genesis says about marriage and sex, everything Paul doubles down on in Ephesians 5, it all comes to a climax at the end of the human story, the end of our story in Revelation 19, where, listen, we learn what marriage and intimacy in marriage have pointed to and been all about from the very beginning. What's that? Revelation 19.6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out the end of time, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Jesus has returned. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do, Do you realize that the Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding? The whole Bible is sandwiched by weddings. Why? Because the sexual faithfulness of a husband and wife to one another in the covenant of marriage is a picture of the spiritual faithfulness of Christ to his people in the covenant of salvation. That's why. That's the point. That's a covenant Jesus inaugurated at the cost of his blood. And that's a covenant Jesus will consummate on the day he returns to the eternal praise of his glory. Sex is sacred because it points to the covenant faithfulness of God. That's the answer. Rip it outside of marriage. Sex is still a signpost, but it's it's covered in graffiti. It's denigrated and corrupted. It, It proclaims, it declares a lie. Why? What's the lie? It says covenant relationship this way. When outside of marriage, there is no covenant relationship. It's lying. It says covenant faithfulness here. When actually all there is there is human selfishness. It's lying. 
That, that, that's why sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden. It's not just conservative or cultural or white patriarchy or church power play. It maligns the faithfulness of God. That's the problem. Outside of marriage, sex trashes our witness to the gospel and the goodness of Jesus. So friend, whether you are single or married, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. And if you're married, heed the words of Malachi 2.15. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Why? Because our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. He's bound his public integrity to your public integrity. Principle number three. We are responsible for how we respond to other people's sin. Verses 23 and 24. We are responsible for how we respond to other people's sin, sexual sin included. In the third scenario, verses 23 and 24, Moses turns to deal with the case of a betrothed virgin. A a, a betrothed, a what? (laughs) A betrothed virgin. What's that? A woman who's engaged to be married. Now you need to know, if you're going to understand this, that in the ancient Near East, Betrothal was a whole lot more serious than our modern engagements. It was a legally binding relationship, okay? It had the same covenantal force as marriage. How do we know that? Because what Moses calls, the woman he calls the betrothed virgin in verse 23, he calls his neighbor's wife in verse 24. Not because they're, she's married yet, but because the engagement has the same binding covenantal force. So look at verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. Did you notice there that as with all the other case studies, they always begin with a man's action. That's insightful, not accidental, on a couple levels. But Moses wisely recognizes that, that men, more often than not, though not always, are more sexually aggressive than women. And, and their relatively greater physical strength often means they are the guilty party in a non-consensual relationship. And, to add to that, zoom out to the whole Bible, there's a critical sense in which the Lord holds men responsible on account of our unique leadership role, right? For, For the sexual integrity of the entire community. That said, the point here is that when a woman willfully participates in sexual sin, she's equally guilty. She's not less guilty. I mean, in verse 23, is the man sinning? Yeah. Okay, hopefully that's not unclear to anybody. Does it appear that the man takes the initiative in the liaison? Yes, but that doesn't remove the woman's responsibility for the way she responds to the man's initiative. In this case, they're both guilty. Now, Lest you cry foul, 
and write Moses off as a blamed victim chauvinist. You know what I'm talking about? Who's protecting the patriarchy? Consider two things. First, notice in verse 25, there's no language of physical violence. We're going to get to that stuff in a minute, but not here. It's a case of seduction, not rape. Second, in the cities of Israel, another cultural data point, homes were built incredibly close together. There really was no privacy as we define it today. There really wasn't. I mean, most homes had one room. People practically lived, almost literally lived on top of each other. Help, if you wanted it, to escape a seductive, flirtatious man was readily available in most cases. But the woman didn't cry for help here. She had a way of escape, even if his advances were not consensual, but she didn't take it. And thus, despite the man's apparent initiative, she's equally responsible for the sexual sin they committed. Why, Why do I linger here at risk of getting in a ton of hot water? You don't think I don't feel that? (laughs) I linger here because we're told today, my friends, that the world is divided into two groups. Oppressors and the oppressed. If you're categorized as an oppressor by virtue of your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, you are always responsible for your actions. And if something goes wrong in a situation you're a part of, It's your fault, no matter who else is involved, because you're an oppressor. But if you're numbered among the oppressed by virtue of the same kinds of categories, you are either not responsible or less responsible for your actions because you're a victim. You don't really have a choice because your gender, ethnicity, fill in the blank, puts you in a, I'm oppressed, I'm not an oppressor. So it can never be your fault. End of story. I realize I'm generalizing here, but if you've sat in any college classroom in the last 10 years, you've heard this. It's common. It's a common narrative. And Scripture says two really important things in response here. Please hear this. First, God is not blind to the reality of oppression in a fallen world. He's not blind. Or the fact that certain classes of people are are more often than not on the receiving end of certain consequences of sin. He's not blind to that. I mean, there's a reason in John 4 that, that the gospel highlights Jesus' conversation with a woman of Samaria. God's not blind to that reality of oppression. Second, primarily here in Deuteronomy though, The way someone else sins against you or leads you into sin does not remove your personal responsibility for the way you respond to their sin. In fact, Moses dignifies the woman in verse 24 by refusing to absolve her of her responsibility for her actions. He's recognizing her dignity as a morally accountable image bearer of the living God. So what am I not saying? not saying social oppression isn't real. It is. What am I saying? 
that even if you feel less powerful or have less of a voice or have historically suffered at the hands of other people, in any given situation, you, my friend, are still responsible before God for the ethical choices you make. That's what I'm saying. Moses is not blaming the victim here. He's he's affirming our shared dignity and moral accountability. Why? Why? Because our faithful God is equally committed to upholding justice for men and women, black and white, and rich and poor, because he is a God of perfect justice. So don't use somebody else's sin as an excuse for your own. Don't do that. You're responsible for how you respond to other people's sin. If you have a way of escape and you don't take it, that's on you, not them. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's the last principle. And this is really important and a necessary balance to all we have said thus far. Because Moses is an exceedingly good pastor. I hope you realize he's not just oh, well, that came up on Tuesday, so let's say a few things about that. And I I heard that was looming next week, so let's go ahead and speak to that. He's shepherding Israel here. He's laying out critical principles, principles we're talking about this morning, to guide them in what? What's the big picture? How do we roll with our bodies? What do we do with our bodies in a fallen world? Here's the last principle. We are not responsible for how other people sin against us. We're not responsible for other people sin against us. Verses 25 to 29. Look, look at verse 25 here, friend. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Did, did you notice here that the language of being seized, first time it showed up, It's a different Hebrew word. It it suggests it. It points to to physical violence. Sexual abuse of some kind. And in this case, because it took place in the open country, not in the city, the woman is rightfully given the benefit of the doubt. That that was radically countercultural in the ancient Near East. God's upholding through the law the dignity and honor of the weak and the vulnerable here. The liaison is assumed, it must be assumed, Moses says, to not be consensual. Why? Because there's an absence of evidence that she was a willing participant. She must be given the benefit of the doubt. Verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Guys, I want to speak here as a pastor, very directly to those of you that have been sexually abused. What I'm about to say to you is not all that God has to say to you. But this is vitally important for you to hear. So please listen to me. Because the Lord loves you and I love you. 
you are not responsible in the eyes of God for how that person or those people touched you sexually. How they sinned against you. Did, you're not responsible. Could you have, in hindsight, made some unwise choices along the way? Perhaps. I don't know your situation. But I don't need to know the details, any of the details, to know this. Their sin is not your fault. I don't need to know the details. I know this. Their sin is not your fault. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Notice the betrothed woman in verse 25 is not responsible for what the man does to her any more than the woman who's not betrothed in verse 28 is responsible for what another man does to her. So friend, if you were abused or taken advantage of sexually, you were not responsible for what that other person did to you. Our, our father in heaven, he doesn't shame victims. He vindicates them. It, it is the emotional impact of, of felt guilt by association real? Yeah, it's very real. But that doesn't change the life-giving, justice-upholding reality of God's posture towards you. Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What's God saying to you? That God sees and God knows and do not cling to a guilt for that person's sin that Almighty God has said is not yours to carry. And don't think humility requires that you take partial responsibility for what they did if they have the audacity to try and blame you for it. We serve a just God, brothers and sisters, who promises a day's coming when he's going to right every wrong. That's our hope. And, and all the economic protections for the violated woman in verses 28 and 29, they reflect as much. Though the Lord ensured she wouldn't be left unmarried and financially destitute on account of a public perception that she's now damaged goods. The man who lay with her must provide with her. He may not divorce her. Perhaps that's the reason Moses says he's not executed. He has to take financial responsibility for her. And whatever children may come from their illicit union, that, that does not mean, please hear me on this because this scripture can be readily misapplied in the church today. That doesn't mean, my single friend, that pleasing the Lord requires marrying an unmarried woman with whom you've had sex. Or that if somebody gets pregnant, you have to marry them. That's not the claim of this passage. Could it be wise? Perhaps. 
it could also be utterly foolish. How do we know the difference? Well, we have to take a lot of factors into consideration. For example, are you a Christian? Would you be marrying a non-Christian? Why? Because pregnancy doesn't undo the authority of 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Two, Two wrongs don't make a right. Bottom line, we're not responsible for how other people sin against us. And if you sin against someone else, especially in the sexual realm, justice requires that that you seek restoration in biblically wise ways for those you have harmed. Hear the heart of God in that. We'll end with this. You work through this whole section, friends, and it really is sobering. Um, Your faces tell me you have been sobered this morning. It's sobering, isn't it? Whip him, stone her to death. Both of them shall die, stone them to death. The man who lay with her shall die. I mean, all of that points to more than the fact that that sexual sin is serious. It points to the truth of of Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death. And even as I say that, you know, let's be honest. Who among us has never defamed God's name with our bodies? And in fact, the the language in verse 30, to borrow it here, who among us has not shamefully uncovered, whether in word or thought or deed, what God says is worthy of protection and honor? Who among us has not sinned sexually? Denigrating God's faithfulness in the process. We, We all have, friends. And Jesus Christ stands ready to cover over all of that sin and shame. All of that. The things other people know you've done, the things nobody else knows that you've done or looked at. 1 Peter 4.8, love what? Covers a multitude of sins. What our sexual sin uncovers, grievously, love covers. What what kind of love does that? It's a divine love. It doesn't just ignore our sin, but makes a way for you to be forgiven and cleansed from your sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God's word is clear. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, but Paul doesn't stop there. What's he say next in 1 Corinthians 6? And such were some of you, speaking to the church, but you were what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What what happens, friend, when you come to Jesus with the guilt and shame of all your sexual sin? He doesn't say, go back and try harder. He says what? I will wash you, I will make you clean. I will sanctify you. I will bring you into the realm of the holy. I will justify you. I'll make you right with God. Not on account of the goodness of your name, but on the account of the goodness of mine. So must you uphold God's faithfulness with your body? Yes. It's a privilege to do so. 
But remember, friend, you're not fighting to show the world, ultimately, that you're faithful. You're fighting to show the world that Jesus is faithful because because Jesus perfectly upheld the faithfulness of God with his body. (laughs) Amen? And so what hope does that have for us? That Jesus is able to cleanse you, Jesus is able to strengthen you, and Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost, no matter what you have done with your body or what your eyes have feasted upon. That's the gospel. So show the world that he's faithful, friend, by making much of him with your body. You're not your own. He bought you with a price, Christian. So honor God with your body. Because sex isn't about you. It's about God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what can we say but please help? Please help. Please help. We need you to convict us. We need you to wash us. We need you to sanctify us. We need you to restore us. Please help, Lord. And as we bring that prayer to you in this final song, would you lift our eyes to the Son of God, to the promise of the gospel, To you, Jesus, the only man who has ever lived and perfectly upheld the faithfulness of God with your body. Jesus, you are our hope. In all the mess we find ourselves, all the trouble we create, all the trouble other people bring, all the ways we trouble our own trouble, you are our hope. You are our refuge. Thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Would your kindness to us, Lord Jesus. Lead us to repent with our bodies. Amen.